Hello, my friend. How's it going? Hey there. How are you? And congratulations on the baby. That's the best. Oh, oh thank you. It's a whole new way of living. Are you sleeping? <laughs> yeah, he's um, he's so chilled out. He's like, he goes to bed and then he wakes up at five, goes back to bed, and doesn't wake up till nine or ten. Holy cow! That's a super baby. Isn't awesome. it? And he's eleven and a half pounds, and he's only two weeks old. The nurse said she's never seen anything like it. Wow, that's yeah. good. All right, so I will say a little bit about you and I'll let you add whatever you want. Pulitzer Prize winner and national security reporter for the Washington Post. Author of two books, The Red Line, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS and the Triple Agent. And he's going to be stopping by to discuss the unraveling of Syria and what part the CIA played in removing chemical weapons. So what got you interested in this line of work, Joby? Well, uh, I've got all the wonderful topics that are um, nothing but uh, completely depressing and demoralizing. Terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, and everything came together in this one story, which is Syria, which, as our uh, listeners and viewers might remember, had a, a very significant stockpile of a weapon of mass destruction. They had sarin, military-grade, huge quantities of it. And suddenly it's the middle of a civil war in 2011 with you know, you know government losing control of territory, with, with known terrorist groups moving into the country to take part in the conflict. It was a recipe for absolute catastrophe. And obviously it was a catastrophe for Syrian civilians, but it was also just a really, um, you know, as a journalist, extremely interesting story with very high stakes, with lots of players, with lots of secrecy and intrigue. And in the end, a, a pretty impressive technical solution that managed to get uh, most of those chemicals out of the country in the middle of a civil war, which is the, the amazing part. Where did all those weapons come from? Did we sell them to them? <laughs> you know, for once we didn't. Uh, it, you know, some of our, our listeners might, might remember that uh, uh, the U.S. government helped other countries with various programs. Uh, the, uh, the Saddam Hussein got some technical help and some chemicals from Western Europe. Um, in this case, uh, this was a homegrown program. And we know this because uh, the, the CIA actually cultivated a spy who worked in this complex, one of the senior scientists. We operated him for years. And one of the things we found out is that Syria had developed some pretty good sarin and they actually shared a sample with us. We let, they let us see what they had made and it was pretty impressive. It got uh, shared with, uh, with one of the CIA operators, operatives in a, in a restaurant in downtown Damascus and it was brought back to, 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 uh, to, to, uh, to, to Langley to be tested. Okay, and thousands of war crimes have been committed by different sides in Syria's civil war. Civilians are being brutally killed in lots of ways. Why does this one attack deserve special attention? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. There have been, you know, different accounting of how many people died in Syria. It's, it's, it's a huge number. There are millions of people who remain uh, displaced, either in refugee camps or internally displaced. So there are atrocities galore, everything from, uh, you know, barrel bombings on residential buildings to attacks on hospitals uh, where, where people are being treated, essentially targeting hospitals. Uh, so there's just, you know, take your pick of, of just terrible things that have happened in Syria. What was different about this one attack, and particularly this one that happened 10 years ago, just last month, 10 years ago in, in 2013, uh, a chemical weapon was used in a, in a massive way. Uh, rockets uh, containing sarin, one of the most deadly substances ever invented by people, land on residential neighborhoods. Sarin is heavier than air, so it, it seeps down into basement bomb shelters and places where for families have, have, have sought shelter overnight from, from martyr, uh, mortar and artillery attacks. 
And when uh, the smoke clears, we, we, uh, we see an atrocity. Something like 1,400 people were killed. More than half of them are women and children. And it's the worst chemical weapons attack on civilians, possibly in all times, uh, at least since the 1980s uh, when Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons to gas Kurds in the northern part of this country. So there's been nothing really like it, um, it for decades. And, and there's been no accountability, which is the reason we continue to talk about it even now, 10 years later, because no one's gone to trial. No one has ever been charged. No fact-finding body has ever come around to kind of put together the evidence and, and uh, deliver an indictment to the, uh, to the people that did it. So that's why it remains relevant, at least for, for all of us to talk about. So what, what do you suppose was the motive to release these chemical weapons? Yeah, it's, it was very curious, and the timing uh, particularly was curious because just a couple of years before this, uh, or just over a year before this, the President of the United States, Barack Obama at the time, had warned Syria, don't use your chemical weapons, don't give them to anyone else, don't use them on anyone, and if you do, this is going to be a red line for us, there are going to be serious consequences. And so there was this disbelief that uh, the Syrian leadership would, would carry out such a provocative attack so close to the capital. And in, in presence uh, or you know, near TV cameras where the whole world could witness the thing. And we you know, took some time, particularly in my book, to, to try to figure out what the motivation was. And it seems to be in part a, a huge uh, miscalculation by the Syrian regime. They had begun using little bits of chemical weapons. They had huge stockpiles. They planned to use them against Israel in a future war. But when it came to Syrians fighting Syrians, the Assad regime, out of desperation, began using a little bit of sarin here, a little bit of chlorine, and an attack over here. And then in this one moment in August of 2013, when the Syrian regime was trying to clear out opposition-held neighborhoods near the capital, they decided to use chemical weapons. And since they didn't have a lot of experience with them, they completely overdid it in the sense of using much more chemicals of a much higher concentration in you know multiple rocket attacks in two parts of, of of the suburbs of Damascus, all of it adding to you know mass death, mass mass casualties, and immediately um, just the evidence that has come in since then, the Syrians knew they screwed up. There were intercepted phone calls between military officials in Syria saying, "Wow, you know this is this is going to get us in a lot of trouble," and it certainly did. The whole world, including Syria's best allies, Russia. Uh, came down on them and, and essentially forced Syria to, to agree to give up its weapons once and for all. So it, it was a, if it was a mistake, then who were they supposedly targeting? Yeah, so the, 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 the obvious targets for these weapons were these uh, opposition-held um, neighborhoods in, in the suburbs. Around the outskirts of, of Damascus, you have the inner city, which is controlled by the regime, and then there's this belt of suburbs called Ghouta, which, which uh, essentially was once a farming area with orchards. It became a very densely populated suburb. And it was essentially rebel-held. The, uh, the, so the opposition forces at the time controlled all those, those areas. And they were creating a real you know, menace for, for people in the capital, for the Assad family and for the regime. You'd have a, a mortar attacks during the middle of the day, hitting government facilities and landing on hotels where tourists stayed or stayed in the old days. And so there was a concerted effort by the regime in 2013 to try to finally push those, those rebels out. And so they targeted the neighborhoods where these rebels were concentrated. And this tactic of using chemical weapons became, for the regime, a terror tactic. It's, uh, it's not just about killing people, but it's about scaring them, terrorizing them, driving them out of their, their neighborhoods. And that worked in other places, 
The problem is, uh, I don't think they calculated on so many people getting killed and most of them being women and children, and then all of it being documented by TV cameras when, when the sun came up the next day. So we're talking to Joby Warwick. If anyone's got any questions, put them in the chat wherever you are watching this in the world. And we've had one question came in from Jason. He's wondering uh, whether this could possibly have been a false flag operation. Hmm. Yeah, that question has come up a lot. And and to be honest, the people who were on the ground investigating this attack in the very early hours happened to be UN officials in Damascus when the attack took place, so close to the attack itself that they could actually see the contrails of of rockets hitting some of these suburbs. And so they were skeptical at first that, you know, why why would this uh, why would the regime do this? Maybe some opposition group is trying to to um, you know push the United States into joining the conflict. And then this what we came down to to just to concluding in our investigation was that, you know, there, there's no evidence pointing to opposition having these chemicals at all. Sarin is extremely hard to make, it's extremely difficult to handle. In fact, we recently learned that some of the Syrian soldiers who were trying to load and mix these chemicals prior to using them were killed during this, this effort to try to get ready for the attack. We, we know they had, because Syrians have admitted themselves, hundreds of tons of sarin. We know exactly what the sarin was because we've gotten samples of it before the attack and after. So we, we've seen the chemical signatures. So we know the precise product they were using. And that was what was used in, in this, this suburb this, this day. So they, it was, the weapons were fired from regime-held areas. They were fired at opposition neighborhoods uh, using um, Soviet-designed munitions and a chemical weapon that the Syrians are known to have had by their own admission. And so that's all the evidence on one side. On the evidence on the other, there really is none. There's no, nothing has, 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 has emerged to this day that suggested that that uh, the Syrian rebels either had the capability of making weapons like this or, or got them from somewhere else and managed to get the exact same formula that Syrians used. After a while, just the, sort of the, 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 uh, the possibilities or the, sort of the odds of any other explanation making sense just completely disappear. Question from Papa Chubby. Is it fair to say that Russian backing of Syria gave them the confidence to carry out a chemical attack? I think so in the beginning. And up until the point that, uh, that this huge attack took place, Russia didn't seem to have any serious problem uh, with, with anything that Syria was doing. Syria is an important ally to Russia. It's their only warm water naval port in the world. They were completely invested in, in the Assad regime's survival. And so pretty much anything that Assad did to, to, to survive, anything he did to, to, to make sure that he remained in power was supported by the Russians, not just diplomatically, but with weapons, with tanks, with military parts, with helicopters. Um, it's funny, though, this, this one attack was, was the moment when the Russians, even the Russians said, whoa, this is too much, even for us, and, and sort of came down on the Syrians and made them give up their stockpile and essentially humiliated them in front of the world and, and made them give up something that was really important to them because the, this chemical weapon stockpile was their counterpoint to, to Israeli nuclear missiles. It was the most important, most expensive um, weapon system they had. And because Russia insisted on it, they had to, to give that up. Interestingly, later on, after the, the, most of the weapons were removed, Russia reverted to form and would cover up for, for Syrian misbehavior. And we see Syria in the, in the months after the removal of the weapons uh, resort to using other things like chlorine. Uh, chlorine gas is actually the original chemical weapon used in World War I, but everybody has it. You're legally allowed to have chlorine because we use it for drinking water purification or swimming pools. 
And so they switched to using chlorine to bomb residential neighborhoods all around Syria. And the Russians said, fine, no problem with this. It was brought up to the United Nations multiple times. Sanctions were suggested. And every time Russia said, we have Syria's back on this, there'll be no investigation of any serious kind. And so it was essentially allowed to, they're allowed to get away with it. Jason wants to know where the evidence came from and who were the investigators? Yeah. So there's this organization that is uh, little known in the world and was, you know, especially before the chemical attacks of, of 2013. But there's this thing called the OPCW, the Organization for Prevention of Chemical Weapons. And they're a UN sort of uh, uh, chartered organization, kind of like the IAEA, which investigates nuclear facilities around the world. And their job is to make sure countries don't have chemical weapons. And in this case, they were the ones that were put in charge of, of investigating what Syria had done, of, of finding the, sort of the, the, the existing weapon stockpiles and helping Syria eliminate them. And it's made up of, you know, experts from around the world. So these aren't Americans or Brits. Uh, they're they're uh, Germans, they're Norwegians, there's uh, you know, people from, from the Middle East, from Africa, technical experts who are brought together in this one agency and allowed to go to these countries to, to perform investigations. And they are very elaborate investigations. They have scientific, uh, you know, you know, labs uh, that are dedicated for their use when they have a, a sample of a chemical that's believed to be a chemical weapon that comes out of a place like Syria. It's their multiple labs will check the same sample to make sure they all agree. Um, you know, high precision molecular analysis. It's, it's a very rigorous and very time consuming investigation that these folks do. And the intelligence community, the, so the countries of, of the wider world have no say in it. This is an independent agency, independent body that does their own work. And if you look at their reports and the rigor that they apply to these investigations, it's quite impressive. And people that want to dismiss uh, the, the findings of these groups because they, um, you know, don't appreciate the conclusions or disagree with them, it's really, really hard to argue with the evidence they come out with. Fred is asked: Is the oil in Syria? Yeah, there is some, but very little, unfortunately, for the Syrians. Not enough to sustain the country itself. So they have some oil fields that are out in the western part of the country. Uh, there was some controversy after, you know, during the, the Trump administration when Trump declared that we should take over those oil wells. They should we should uh, they should be ours for some reason. But in fact, uh, most of them are, are operated by people in, in the eastern part of Syria, by the, the Kurdish groups and, and the Arab tribes that exist there. But it's really not much oil. And the facilities for developing it, for refining it are fairly crude. In fact, for a long time during the war, uh, ISIS controlled this territory. You would see them try to refine oil, you know, in big ditches, essentially using, uh, you know, 100 year old techniques to try to turn it into gasoline or kerosene or whatever they could use. But it's it's as a economic factor, it's it's really a, a non entity in terms of, of anyone wanting to get involved with that country. So did this create a dilemma for Obama? It did. And uh, and that's part of what we try to, to, to kind of really break down in this book. And I was lucky in that I was able to to talk to hundreds of people at multiple levels of this entire story, including people within the administration who were figuring this out in real time in 2013. So Obama had said painted himself in a corner by using the term red line. If chemical weapons are used, this will be a red line. If you cross it, there'll be consequences. He didn't say what consequences, but everybody assumed it meant a military strike. And then his, his red line is very flagrantly violated. There's this 
horrible chemical weapons attack. And he's essentially in a position where he has to respond. And everybody expects that there'll be missiles launched anytime. And in fact, the, the, the Pentagon put together a strike plan. They had ships already located in the Mediterranean. Obama was pretty much ready to pull the trigger on a, on a strike. But there were two problems. One, there was this UN team, which I referred to briefly there. UN officials were in the country. And so there was this effort to try to get them out, quickly get these guys out so they can't be used as hostages or they can't you know, physically get in the way of, of a military strike. That took some days. By the time that was happening, the rest of the world, so the, you, the German chancellor and other countries were telling Obama, don't do it yet. Don't just do a unilateral missile strike. Let's talk about this. Let's figure out a, a way to handle this collectively as, as a world community. And he agreed to that. And time keeps passing. And finally, he decides, uh, Obama decides that he's going to ask Congress to approve a, a military strike because he's criticized past administrations for just you know, getting involved in conflicts without congressional approval. So this time we'll go to Congress and we'll say, hey, we want to do this military strike. We want your vote of support. And, and Congress essentially laughed it out of out of the court. They, the Republicans and Democrats said, no way we're going to support another military campaign in the Middle East. So you don't have our backing for this. And Obama essentially was eventually completely stuck. He, he had declared he was going to strike. But now he really had no legitimate political uh, pathway to doing that. And so until the Russians came up with a, a proposal to eliminate serious chemical weapons stockpile, he was really screwed. And there was really uh, it was it's, it was excruciating predicament for the people who were there at the time. So Joanne said if Assad was winning, why would he use chemical weapons? Hmm. Well, this is the point of the conflict where he wasn't necessarily winning. So the, the, the conflict ebbed and flowed at various times. But in 2013, things were, were fairly dire. There were um, the, the, uh, the, the rebels held significant territory, including some major cities in, in the country, including this ring of, uh, of, of suburbs and residential areas right around the capital itself. And there was serious concern at the time that, uh, that the regime could topple. And in fact, uh, the, uh, some of the Western countries were falling over themselves trying to figure out who the good opposition players were, who can we deal with when Assad falls, which everybody assumed was going to happen. Um, but what, happened, what eventually uh, occurred was um, essentially Syria had important backing by the Russians and also by the Iranians and by the Hezbollah, which is Iranian-allied militia group, and, and forces eventually arrayed within Syria to, to, to prop up the Syrian regime. But by itself, in 2013, when all these events were happening, uh, Syria was not capable of surviving as, as, uh, as a regime as it was. And, um, and it, was, it seemed to be a foregone conclusion that the, the regime would fall and maybe Assad would seek exile or something like that. But he wasn't winning uh, in 2013 when he started taking this desperate, um, this, these desperate measures of using chemical weapons against his own people. Before we look at ISIS's role in the Syrian conflict, I mean, how, how did ISIS come about? Who who are they? Yeah, I my preceded this was called Black Flags. It's essentially the backstory of of where ISIS came from, and the pedigree is this is a terrorist group that grew out of the the U.S. U.S. invasion of Iraq in in two thousand three. There were individuals, including this uh, the key figure named Zarqawi, who was a Jordanian kind of a thuggish uh, personality who was quite the opposite of someone like Osama bin Laden, who's learned, who you know, has university degrees. It kind of goes at this business of being a terrorist leader is almost an intellectual enterprise. Zarqawi was a thug, but he was a thug who had you know, the sense to move himself to 
Iraq just before the U.S. invasion and, and was able to build on the resentment uh, toward the United States to, to, to formulate a terrorist group that became known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was effectively defeated by around 2008 or 9. Only a few remnants survived. But after the U.S. withdrew from, from Iraq, it, it reconstituted itself and gave itself a new name, the Islamic State. And that's what we know it to be today. It still exists, of course. All right. So they expanded from Iraq into which regions? So Syria was this perfect opportunity for this group because it was Iraqi-based, uh, but under some pressure by the Iraqi, by the Iraqi regime. Uh, and yet when a Syria, uh, civil war breaks out right next door in Syria, you have a situation where there's ungoverned territory. There's a lot of uh, parts of Syria where the government really, you know, it's a no-go zone for them. There's um, there the places awash in weapons, and the uh, Syria becomes kind of a cause for 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 some radical groups around the world. Let's go to Syria and help liberate our Arab brethren from this this tyrant. And so ISIS rolls into Syria to take advantage of this, and it becomes a perfect storm uh, in terms of of a terrorist movement because you suddenly have tens of thousands of people immigrating to Syria to, to join this cause. And many of them end up uh, becoming part of ISIS because ISIS was the strongest, the most militarily capable. And they also had the sort of the, the religious message that resonated with a lot of people. We're going to we're going to recreate the Islamic caliphate. We're going to do it right here, this religious empire. And so people who, who weren't necessarily uh, intending to be part of a terrorist group uh, like that idea. They wanted to, to move to Syria to be part of it. And that's how they became so big and so powerful so quickly. So how many different factions were fighting in Syria? Hundreds. It's insane when you we try to break it down. It's almost like every little neighborhood had its armed brigade. And it could be, in the beginning, it was literally shopkeepers and students and people like that joining different militia groups. Uh, toward um, 20, later in 2013, and certainly by 2014, those started to fade away. And you saw in their place more organized groups who were getting funding from Gulf states. And these were groups like uh, Al-Nusra Front, which is essentially an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, or at least was in the beginning. And then ISIS comes in the middle of that. And there are other factions like this, too. And the ones that became the ones that lasted and the ones that became, uh, you know, serious military um, efforts were the ones that were essentially run by the Islamists and the civilians, then the, um, you know, the civilian controlled militias started to fade away into the background. I mean, we saw this in the news when it erupted and it's faded. So how did it play out over the time that it's not been so prominent in the news? Yeah, so it has disappeared. I mean, people really, we don't read about Syria much in, in the newspapers or see it on TV. The conflict is still going on. It's essentially frozen to the extent that there's a couple of pockets of, of, of opposition um, that still exist, particularly in the northwest in this town called Idlib, which is controlled by some of the militia groups uh, with Turkey support. And then there are Kurdish groups and others that control different parts of, of the east. And um, But there's no end to the civil war. There's you know, continuing clashes that take place. And in the meantime, the, the Syrian country, the country of Syria, has, has imploded. There's no viable economy there. It's become a haven for, for drug dealers, drug manufacturers. Um, it's, it's a continuing um, you know, uh, you know, magnet or draw for, for various radical groups. We're going to hear from Syria again. It's, in my opinion, there's, there's no question that there's going to be 
another chapter in this story and perhaps more brutal than the last one. We saw what happened in Afghanistan, a country that got essentially disintegrated in the same way that Syria is and, and uh, devolved into you know, various groups of you know, warlords controlling parts of the country. And that's what gave us uh, the Taliban and what gave us Al-Qaeda. And so these lawless, um, unresolved conflicts or lawless areas tend to, uh, tend to create problems uh, at some point or another. So I think it's a matter of time that we're going to have um, some experiences with Syria again. They're not going to be so pleasant. So where are all the arms coming from to keep this going? Yeah, so on the multiple different sides, uh, on this, the Assad side, the Russians and the, and the Iranians kept Assad propped up with weapons, everything from small arms and explosives, to helicopters and tanks. So that's, that's the one side. And on the other, it was the largesse of uh, a lot of it from Gulf countries, uh, particularly the, the Qataris and Saudis, Emiratis, uh, supplied either weapons or, in some cases, just money which to buy weapons. So the, the country became awash in weapons with no shortage of arms, that's for sure. And then the CIA had this ultimately unsuccessful effort to arm some of the friendlies to kind of create uh, little enclaves within Turkey where they could uh, bring people to, to get training and get weapons and then send them back into Syria to fight Assad. And that didn't do very well because uh, as soon as some of these units crossed the border and, and, and joined the fight, often they were talked into joining some of the existing groups like uh, ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda. Others just were quickly defeated or, or gave up. And so a lot of those weapons that the United States supplied ended up in, in going into the hands of, of rebel, of sort of Islamist rebel groups or just being lost or, or taken over by Assad. Is there an estimate on how many people have died to date? Hmm. I've seen various estimates. I think the closest figure is somewhere in the, in the range of a half million. It's, it's a staggering figure given that the, the country was, it's just not, was not a, a huge country to begin with. But what's even more tragic to me going forward is the fact that there are so many people that have no home to go to that are, camped out in semi-permanent refugee camps all along the border in Turkey and in Jordan, uh, kids who have really had no school, have no uh, real hope of rebuilding communities. And this is a ongoing sort of festering problem. In addition to all that, there's, there are thousands of former ISIS fighters who are in, in internment camps in, in eastern Syria, mostly run by the Kurdish forces. There's, there's no you know, no Geneva Convention for them, no process for repatriating them or, or bringing them to justice. And so they've been sitting there in these camps for year after year. Mm. And it's it's a problem that's uh, that's becoming more dangerous because you're seeing kids who were born under ISIS now entering, you know, a military age or, or, or an age where they could be radicalized to join these organizations. And that is happening indeed in some of these, these camps and uh, detention centers in the East. That's so sad, Joby. I really feel sorry for the kids, especially. And we've run out of time here. Do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? So my day job remains the Washington Post. So I cover uh, national security, and that's everything from uh, Middle East conflicts and terrorism to weapons proliferation. So, again, all the fun topics. And uh, so I do have my three books out, and you can, uh, you, you can find me on, uh, on Twitter. And also I have a website. It's just Joby Warwick at uh, you know, and uh, also on, on Gmail and, and WashingtonPost.com. Huge, thank you for coming on and spending time with us, and you take care, my friend. Cheers. Thank you, Sean. Good luck with the baby. Oh, thank you. Cheers. All right.